Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Seeking Truth and our study of Luke chapter 2. Dr. Peter Kraft said this, The church should not be mistaken for a political body because it is an organic body living. And no organic body can be a democracy. It must have a head. Christ gave the church a head. Jesus Christ is the head and we are the body and he knew he was ascending back to the right hand of the father and so he said to Peter in Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so we are an apostolic church. It's one of the four markers that we have an apostolic succession starting with Peter from Jesus Christ to Peter to 266 popes. Number 266 is Francis in a solid and broken succession. You can go to St. Paul outside the walls and see them all the mosaics. You can buy the chart and get the whole unbroken chain. In John chapter 13, at the very last Seder Passover meal of Jesus Christ, and really the final one, he foretold that Peter would deny him not once, not twice, but three times. Yet we have the chair of Peter at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. There's the chair of St. Peter with the Holy Spirit and the four doctors of the church holding up, inspired by the Spirit, the chair of Peter. That means something. We even have a feast day for the chair of St. Peter. What is on the chair, it's the reinstatement of Peter, where he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my lambs and feed my sheep. Three denials, three acquittals. And that's what's carved into the chair of St. Peter. And it gives something, some power to Peter. And we have something called infallibility. Do you know what it is, infallibility? I looked it up in the dictionary. The quality of being infallible. (laughs) The inability to be wrong. Like Steve in a fight. (laughs) Sorry, honey. We're talking about papal infallibility in the Roman Catholic Church. And it's this, the doctrine that in specific circumstances, the Pope is incapable of error in pronouncing dogma. Incapable of error. How could that be? Well, Jesus Christ at that last Seder meal said to the 12, and only to the 12, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another counselor and he will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. He dwells in you and he will be with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said. So the church in this apostolic succession is going to interpret and protect all the words that Jesus said, because you can interpret them a lot of different ways, just like our Supreme Court can determine laws a lot of different ways. The marks of the church are that she is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. You say it in the creed every time you go to mass. So I want to ask you, how many times has the office 
of the pontiff spoken infallibly. In all 2,000 plus years of the church, for 2,000 years, how many times? Two. 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 And both are about Mary. Only twice, and both doctrines about Mary. The first one in 1854, Pope Pius IX said that Mary was immaculately conceived. He was our longest reigning pope, 31 years. John Paul was number two with 26 years. But the really longest one was Peter. We don't know exactly, but probably 34 to 37 years before he was beheaded. But the immaculate conception of Mary was the very first doctrine, dogma, that was infallibly stated in 1854. The second one about Mary, she's assumed into heaven. The bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, it's dogma, it's infallible. That was Pope Pius XII that said that in 1950. Okay, only those two. That's the only time the Pope has spoken infallibly. Those were both grandfathered in at Vatican I because at Vatican I in 1870 is when they defined what it means to be infallible. And those two doctrines were grandfathered in. There must be three requirements. The pronouncement must be made by the lawful successor of St. Peter. Number two, the subject matter must be in the area of faith and morals. Number three, the Pope must be speaking ex cathedra which means from that very seat, the office of St. Peter. When Pope Francis speaks on an airplane, it is not infallible. He is not speaking from the chair of Peter. When he tweets at Pontifex, he is not infallible, okay? When he speaks from the chair of Peter, he would be. He's never done that. Okay, so the first one, December 8th of 1854. It's the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Some people, even Catholics, get it wrong. They think it's the Immaculate Conception of Jesus. No, no, no. It's Mary. Saint Joachim and Saint Anne had an Immaculate Conception. We talked about it last week. But the dogma says this, infallibly. The most blessed Virgin Mary is the first, at the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. Goes on to say, Mary's salvation was won by her son, Jesus Christ, through his passion, death, and resurrection, and was not due to her own merits. She says in her Magnificat, my spirit rejoices in God, my what? My savior. Mary needed a savior too. We don't worship Mary. We honor Mary for her yes, her total yes, to cooperate with God in this wonderful plan of salvation. She's immaculately conceived to be that pure vessel, and this was the very first infallible statement by the Holy Father. And so the minute after he made it, he hired this artist, Francesco Podesti, who would spend the next 11 years of his life painting the Immaculate Conception Room at the Vatican. 11 years he spent, and you can go to the Vatican and you can walk through the room of the Immaculate Conception, and I know some of you have, and Mother Church always catechizes her children with what? Beauty. Why? Because beauty is a transcendent and leads us to truth. So this beautiful room called the Immaculate Conception Room, everyone hurries through it because they want to get to the Raphael rooms, but you have to spend some time in this room. The first wall are the theologians fighting over this doctrine. For three years, the theologians went back and forth and back and forth in every scripture and every writing and every document they could find about this. They, they debated. Scholars were commissioned from 1851 to 1853 to every nook and cranny of this doctrine. So in 1854, there was the proclamation ex cathedra from the chair of Peter. The other wall is the crowning of Mary and her assumption into heaven. 
so you have the church triumphant up above and the church militant down below. You have the glory of the Virgin Mary in heaven being crowned by the Father. She's lower than Jesus and God because she is a mere human. She is a creature, 100%, but she's higher than all the saints and angels. That's why Lucifer hated her so much because when he saw the divine plan, he saw that a human woman is going to be higher than him, the greatest seraphim angel. I will not serve, he said. And that day fell from heaven with a third of the angels that would not serve as well. Mary, in her fiat, I will serve. So we see the Pope standing to proclaim this dogma. He wanted to make sure the painter painted him standing up. Why? If you go there, the missions of divine revelation are in order, and their whole apostolic mission is to give tours of the Vatican art and explain and catechize the faithful millions that come. And so this order will tell you this story, that why the Pope is standing is because during this ceremony, unexpectedly, a ray of sunlight shone right in his face and blinded him so he couldn't read his papers. The sunbeam came from a window located by the altar of Our Lady of the Pillar in St. Peter's Basilica. The painting shows the ray of sun bouncing off the cross. The light of the ray is bouncing off the cross into his eyes and he's blinded. So he must stand to give the first dogma of the church about her immaculate conception. And he felt this was a very supernatural sign the Pope did and he wanted it painted in there because it was a very, very cloudy day that day. You can see Mary and Eve, and the artist put the exact same face on both Mary and Eve, and she is exactly the same, and that's because they knew that Mary was the new Eve. We talked about that last time. And there's a case, a furniture case in the middle of the room that has facsimiles of all the original documents of this first papal document. And... You always have to look at the ceiling, always look up if you go to the Vatican because the ceiling is breathtakingly gorgeous, but then you get to the Raphael room and the beautiful School of Athens, and so everyone kind of wants to get out of the Mary room. But let's take off where we left last time. The angel, Mary said to the angel, Gabriel, how can this be? How can this be since I have no relations with a man? Now, Mary was intentional about her perpetual virginity, and St. John Paul II knew that. He wrote that she had the intention of remaining a virgin forever. She was all in. She knew the Shema prayer, all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. She was all in. And the angel said to her in reply, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called holy, the son of God. Now, to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit is super special. (laughs) Super special to be overshadowed. It's a Greek word, and the word in Greek for overshadowing is episkiesi. Episkiesi. It's only used at certain times in the Bible, but this translation, every translation has episkiesi, to be overshadowed. Two times only in the New Testament is this verb used. Once in Luke and once in Matthew. What does it mean? Well, this time in Luke, the Holy Spirit of God is overshadowing Mary. And there's a divine presence there. There's a divine presence of the living God. In the Matthew verse, it's the transfiguration of Jesus where he is overshadowed by the cloud. There's a cloud with this. It's the overshadowing of the divine revelation. This is him in his full glory at the transfiguration. He's human, but he wants to show Peter, James, and John that he's divine. Okay, so it's a very special to be overshadowed, episkiesi, indicating the true presence of the divine God is there. 
Now, in the Old Testament, when is it used? Episkiesi. Only in conjunction with the tabernacle and the ark. Only. The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember that in Exodus chapter 40? And Moses would go into this tabernacle of the meeting tent when the cloud would come and all the people would know that the glory of the Lord is in there and they, they would all be praying and waiting for Moses to come out. It was an overshadowing. The true presence of God was speaking with Moses. It was an episkiesi, an overshadowing. Do you remember in Exodus 31, this young kid was assigned to be the one to craft the ark. Do you remember? His name was Bezalel. And the Lord God, guess where he was from? Tribe of Judah. That's Mary's tribe. And he was filled. God said, I have filled him with the spirit of God. Now, no one in the Old Testament is filled with the Spirit of God because he wasn't indwelling people yet until the New Testament. But this kid gets filled with the Spirit of God. He gets the gifts of intelligence and knowledge. Those are gifts of the Holy Spirit, craftsmanship, and he's supposed to craft the ark, and God gives him the vision, and he knows exactly how to do it, and he has the skills to do it. So that's important. When he crafts that ark, they're going to put it into the tent of the meeting, and whenever God is there and the divine presence is there, there's going to be a cloud by day, right? A cloud will be there by day, and what at night? A pillar of fire. And they're going to know the divine presence of God is with them wherever they go. He's always there with them, protecting them, guarding them, guiding them, everything. And that true presence of God will go with the Israelites all through the desert, wherever they go. Moses used to see God face to face. Now, this is absolutely incredible because Moses used to speak to God like someone speaks to a friend, face to face. Only one. And when Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses after he'd been talking with God, the skin of his face shone. It was so bright and radiant, they were afraid to come near him. And there was no prophet arisen in Israel like Moses. No one who knew the Lord face to face like this. But after the golden calf incident... What does Moses do? He intercedes on behalf of the sinful people. He begs God. God's so mad. He says, Moses, I want to destroy this people. And Moses, no, 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 God, please, 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 please. If you don't go with us, he says, you and I just go on, Moses. You and I go on and do this thing. And Moses, no, 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 God. If you don't go with us, nothing will distinguish us from any other nation. You have to come with us. And God says to Moses, okay, but if you want to do this and intercede for these people, then you can't see me face to face anymore. That's done. And Moses says, okay. So now when God walks by, Moses has to hide in the cleft of the rock and he can never talk to God face to face because he's going to intercede on behalf of sinners. So Moses gave it up, but Moses knows that the true presence of God in that ark is powerful. And Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered and let them that hate us flee before thee. And they would always take the ark of the covenant with them. They'd never touch it. They'd carry it on poles. He told them exactly how to do it. Wherever they went, God was with them, the true presence of God. So that ark was very powerful very powerful when they were going into the promised land finally and they get to the Jordan River at flood stage God opens the Jordan River and they pass through dry shod with the ark of the covenant of God the true presence of God leads them right into the holy land one time when they were battling the ark of God got captured by the Philistines they took the ark They took the ark. They took our God. What are we going to do? The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. What will they possibly do? The Philistines took that ark and they put it in one of their temples with Dagon, their God. 
And the next morning, they, they went in to see, and Dagon was crumbled on the floor, and the Ark of the Covenant was shining bright. And they were scared. Then they started getting tumors and mice, and, and, and finally they said, we got to get rid of this Ark. They put it on two oxen and sent it away. They said, we don't want this Ark anymore. The Ark went right back to the people of Israel in Shiloh. They were harvesting the wheat, and they see the Ark in the sunset coming on the oxen. The Ark of the Covenant of God is coming back. And 70 of the men, they looked into the Ark of the Lord to make sure the Philistines hadn't put something in there, a bomb, you know, I don't, I don't know what they had. But they, they opened the Ark and 70 men are struck dead. Because why? They looked in the Ark of God. Boom. They looked into the Ark. The Lord slew 70 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had made a great slaughter among the people. You don't mess with the Ark. Ever. When that ark was finally brought to the temple of Solomon, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When they brought the ark, the priests had to leave. The priests had to get out because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. No one could come in. The glory of the Lord filled the temple because the ark, the true presence of God, was in the temple. Now, I want to make the case to you tonight that Mary is the new ark of a new covenant. And there's not a verse for it. We have to put all these pieces together to understand. But just as the glory of the Lord overshadowed the old ark, the glory of the Lord, Epikizazi, will come over Mary and overshadow her. And their contents will be the same, but new. Remember at this time of Jesus, there was no ark in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It had gone missing. Jeremiah the prophet went to the mountain of Moses to see the inheritance of God. The Babylonians were coming. They took the Ark of the Covenant and it was sealed up in a cave, 2 Maccabees 2. And people followed because they wanted to mark the way so they could find the Ark later when the battle was over. They couldn't find it. God had sealed it in a cave. And when Jeremiah learned they were looking for it, he rebuked them and he declared, the place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. Well, when's that going to be? When is God going to gather his people together again and show his mercy? We've never found that ark. And then the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. Oh, and they were shown, this is still Old Testament, they were shown in the case of Moses and Solomon that the place would be specially consecrated like a holy of holies, like maybe the womb of a sinless woman, a special consecration on a new ark. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High God will overshadow you. And a child will be born that will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary is the new ark. The true presence of God, where Moses would meet with God and speak, the true presence of God was now in Mary's womb. She becomes the tent of the meeting with God. The true presence of God is in the tabernacle when they put it in the Holy of Holies. Her womb becomes a tabernacle. The true presence of God has overshadowed her and indwells her. The true presence of God is in a new temple. She's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Her spouse has overshadowed her. And she has said yes with full consent and gives permission, unlike the Roman and Greek gods of the time, where women had no consent. Jesus himself called himself a temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple. This temple you've been working on for 46 years, and I'll raise it up again in three days. Wow, could you possibly do that? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple of his body. The true presence of God is in the Holy of Holies. He's the Holy of Holies, and she's the temple that's surrounding him. The innermost space of the temple is Jesus in the Holy of Holies of Mary. 
the old Ark of the Covenant and the new Ark of the Covenant. It's Mary, the true presence of God. Now, today, you say, where is it now? The true presence of God is in every tabernacle at every Catholic church you go into. The true presence of God is in the tabernacle and the candle is glowing. His name is Jesus. God saves. We adore him. We glorify him. We magnify him. He's the true presence of God. Now behold, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, is in her old age, and she too has conceived a son. And this is her sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. I love, that's one of my favorite lines in all scripture. If you have a really something hard in your life right now, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. What is that called? It's not the Magnificat, but this is a consent of Mary. This is called her fiat. Thank you. It's her full yes, her full consent. It's her generous offering of her entire whole being, her fiat. She was already collaborating with the whole work of her son that he was to accomplish. She is mother whenever he is savior and the head of the mystical body. He's the head of the mystical body. And Pope Pius X said this, and I love it. Mary is the dispensatrix of all the gifts. He said she is the neck connecting the head to the mystical body, its members. And he said, but all power flows through the neck. You know, the neck is very important because the neck can turn the head any way she wants. (laughs) And she's an advocate. Just like Bathsheba and Solomon, when she would whisper in his ear, he would listen to his mother. She's an advocate for us. She's the neck of the body. I love that. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, and let it be done unto me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her, Gabriel. And in those days, Mary arose and went with haste, with haste, just like those shepherds tonight. She went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah. That city was Ancharim, Israel. And some of you have been there, and you're shaking your head. And as it went through time, here it is today. It is in the foothills of the Judean mountains, not far But there is the Church of Visitation, and we were there on the Feast of Visitation. It was quite a supernatural thing. I didn't know it was going to be that feast day. And in this town is also the Church of John the Baptist, because he was born there. This is where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And so you can go in this church, and there's the cave where John was born, and you can venerate, and you can touch the place where John the Baptist was born. This is where their house was. And Mary entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. Now, John leapt in her womb, and he recognizes Jesus Christ is Lord already in the fetus, in utero, he knows. And the ancient icons will paint the two babies in the womb, but notice that Jesus has his right hand up. He's blessing John. John is kneeling and venerating before his Lord. After he's left, he knells down and Jesus is blessing him in all these paintings because he knows he's always pointing to Jesus Christ. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to announce the way. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. 
And the term here is very unique. It's anaphonesin, and it means to exclaim with shouts of joy in the Greek. To exclaim with shouts of joy, and it's only used in the Old Testament in context with liturgical celebration where the Ark of the Covenant is present. Only, only. Mary's the Ark of the Covenant. Elizabeth knows it. Luke knows it because he's using these very specific verbs that are in the Old Testament for only specific things, like that Mary's the Ark of the Covenant. With shouts of joy, anaphaneo. For those who have ears to hear, Luke is telling us time and time again that Mary's the Ark of the Covenant. Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How would she know that? How did she know? Mary's not showing yet. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. We prayed in the rosary time after time after time. Do we know what it means? Blessed, blessed, blessed. She's going to call her blessed three times in this short passage. Now Mary is the only woman in the entire New Testament to be called blessed. She's called blessed, blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit in your womb. What does blessed mean? What does blessed mean in the Old Testament? Who's blessed in the Old Testament? Only two, only two, only two women are blessed in the Old Testament. Deborah is not. She was the first female judge and the only female judge in all of Israel in the days of the judges. And Israel was in trouble because the Canaanites were coming to battle. Deborah's a prophetess. She used to sit by the palm of Deborah and people of Israel would come to her for judgment. She's very wise and a prophetess. The commander of Israel, Barak, came to her one day, and the Lord said through Deborah, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river. I'm going to give him into your hand, Barak. But Barak said to Deborah, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. If you don't go, I won't go. So he wouldn't go to battle for the Lord unless Deborah came. So General Sisera from the Canaanite army is fleeing because he's after him. Deborah and Barak are on the way. And a woman named Jael came out to meet General Sisera. And she said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside, have no fear. And she turned aside to her tent. She let him come in. She covered him up with a rug. And he said to her, pray, just give me a little water to drink. He was so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. He was so tired, so thirsty. And Sisera said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes here, like Barak, if any man comes here and asks, is there anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple. (sighs) Till he went down into the ground. And as he was lying fast asleep from weariness, he died. And behold, Barak pursued Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him and said, come, come, I'll show you the one who you're looking for. He went into Jael's tent, and there lay General Sisera of the Canaanite army dead at the hand of a little woman. He was afraid. He wouldn't even go to battle without Deborah. The tent peg is still in her hand. And Deborah sings a song of praise about Jael, and she says, most blessed of women be Jael. Most blessed of women. She put her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He's dead. Jael is a head crusher. (laughs) And this is really, really important, and that's why she's called blessed. She saves Israel. 
That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter two, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.